afternoon. We are going to get started here with our workshop on depression and the gospel, and I've been encouraged to encourage all of you, if you can, to come to the two middle sections, uh, just to kind of condense, and it's a little bit easier for us to facilitate, uh, hopefully towards the end, a little bit of a question and answer. And hopefully when you came in, you also received a handout as well. And that handout's pretty extensive and will help navigate us through our time together. So if you don't have a handout, uh, perhaps head to the back and pick up a copy. Uh, let me open us up in a word of prayer before we get started. Father God, we come to you this afternoon, and after a lunch break like that, some of us might be a bit tired. Uh, some of us might have a little bit more of a, a difficult time focusing, and so we ask for your help. Lord, help us to be alert and to be attentive to the topic at hand. It is a topic of essential importance for all of us. Father, I doubt that there's a person in this room uh, who has not either personally experienced depression but doesn't also know someone who has struggled through depression. And so, Lord, we want to have eyes to see people as you see them. Father, we want to be people who you use as instruments of comfort and mercy. Uh, so help us towards that end, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for coming to this workshop on depression and the gospel. My name is Jonathan Holmes, and uh, it's my joy to serve as our counseling pastor at Parkside Church, which is in Cleveland, Ohio, and I have the privilege of serving there uh, alongside Alistair Begg, whom some of you might listen to uh, on the radio at Truth For Life, and uh, I also serve as the executive director of Fieldstone Counseling, which is a Christian counseling center uh, that's based there in Northeast Ohio. Uh, today, to give you a little bit of a heads up in terms of what we're going to be covering with depression, we're going to spend a little bit of time in our talk talking about depression and just really orienting our gaze to the landscape, just statistically, as well as just what does a diagnosis of depression look like? And then we'll begin to move towards a section on, well, how is, how is depression actually treated? And what are some of the major treatments for depression? And then we'll seek to build a biblical paradigm for depression. Uh, and we'll actually see that Scripture has a lot to say. And as we think about our cultural witness uh, to a very hopeless and very despairing world, I actually find that uh, our faith and that the Scriptures have a lot to say to this most important topic. And then kind of the last third of our time, we'll spend time really sharpening our skills. What does it look like to help both the struggler uh, with depression and perhaps even some of you? Again, I would, I would be naive to think that there is not a significant group of people in here today that are maybe in the midst of depression, and uh, I want to speak to you towards the end as well. And then, Lord willing, we'll have a little bit of time for Q&A as well. So let's dive in. When we think about depression, uh, sometimes for those of us who have never experienced it, we, we want to begin to get categories of how does depression feel, right? How does depression actually feel? And for the person who is struggling in depression, why doesn't good news just cheer them up? Why can't you just come alongside to someone who's depressed and just share a scripture verse with them or tell them something good about themselves to build them up? Why is it that depression seems to be so difficult oftentimes to move forward in. Ed Welch uh, wrote a really helpful article called Depression's Odd Filter, and I want you to listen to the dialogue. Ed is imagining that he is talking to someone who is depressed and the way that a depressed person might interpret or hear that. Ed writes, he says, someone says to you, I love you. You hear nothing. Actually, you, you hear something. You, you hear a little voice in your brain that says, I'm worthless. You're only saying that you love me because that you think that you have to. Somehow, from the mouths of other people to your ear, all words of blessing and encouragement get tumbled upside down and backward and confirm your suspicions about yourself. You are an abject failure. You're unloved. You're unlovable, and everyone knows it. There are hundreds of variations. Hey, you look nice today. Push it through the filter of depression, and you get not true. You know that I am ugly or you seem to be feeling a little bit better today. This means, oh, so you don't want to talk to me anymore. This is your brain on depression, and we could add it is your brain on shame. Right? There is something about depression, and again, for many of you who have struggled through this dark night of the soul, there is something about depression that oftentimes creates this odd filter to the well-intentioned words and actions of loved ones. And it can be something that is incredibly confusing then and hard on the other side if you are the helper or the caregiver. 
And so our goal today is to sharpen our instincts and our care uh, for these people. Let's take a little bit of a look at the numbers in terms of depression. There's an estimated 17.3 million adults in the U.S. who have had at least one major depressive episode. That number represents 7.1% of everyone in the U.S. It's only exceeded by anxiety as the number one mental health issue that Americans face. All of those 7.1, or out of that 7.1% of all adults who struggle with depression, approximately 35% of adults with a major depressive episode don't receive treatment. So nearly a third of people who meet the criteria for depression will never get help. You'll be surprised to know that the numbers for children and adolescents, if we put those stats up there, that adolescents age 13 through 17 double the numbers for adults, right? That our teens today find themselves more depressed, more anxious than our current adult population, and that if 35% of adults who have depression don't get any type of help, that number rises to 65% of youth who have a diagnosis of depression never get any help. Dr. Catherine Butler sheds a little bit of light on this as to why aren't more people getting help? Why aren't more people moving towards treatment? She says in a survey of 5.4 million adults in the U.S. reporting an unmet need for mental health services, 8.2% don't seek mental health treatment because they don't want other people to find out. 9.5% because it might cause neighbors or a community to have a negative opinion. And 9.6% due to concerns about confidentiality. Some 28% believe that they could handle the problem without treatment, and 22.8% don't know where to go to receive treatment. Such statistics reveal that the road to healing slouches uphill, and many people tread it alone. When we think about caring for people who are struggling in the midst of depression, there is a significant population of people for, for whom getting help is incredibly difficult, right? You might think to yourself, well, listen, why not go see a doctor? Why not talk to somebody in the church? Or why not talk to a counselor? And what we don't realize is that depression, by the very nature of what it can do to us, makes reaching out to other people, makes reaching out to a small group leader or a pastor incredibly difficult. When we think about what actually constitutes a diagnosis of depression, I've listed there for you the DSM-5 criteria to receive a diagnosis of depression. Some of you might be surprised to know that there's no blood test for depression. There's no test that you could take to, to find out whether or not you are depressed, but it's purely based on this criteria that depending on who you see, on a whole variety of levels could be interpreted somewhat subjectively. There's eight different criterion pieces that are listed in the DSM-5 manual, of which you can see here. And in order to qualify for an official diagnosis of depression, you need five of the eight. And you need five of the eight to actually be sustained over a two-week period. And you can see some of the criteria there. Depressed mood most of the day, uh, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain, a slowing down of thought, reduction of physical movements, uh, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day, feelings of worthlessness, diminished ability to concentrate, recurrent thoughts of death or suicidal ideations. And as we read through those, right, there's probably many of those things where you begin to at some level to identify with, right, that, that all of us at various times have probably uh, been able to identify with, if not one or two, several of those different criterion points. But the actual diagnosis of depression uh, requires at least five of those eight to be sustained over a two-week period of time. Let's ask this question then as we move forward. If that's maybe how do people get a diagnosis of depression or what does it look like? A logical question is this, is what, what actually causes depression? And it's a question that comes up a lot, especially on the caregiver side of what, what might cause depression in some ways then might help us know how to treat it. But I will say this at the very front end, and it's this, that depression is a form of suffering that cannot be reduced to a single universal cause. Uh, this means that family and friends can't rush in with the answer, and instead, oftentimes, as we're walking alongside someone who is struggling with depression, we have to be willing to take time and energy and resources to sit with them and to spend time getting to know them. You might be surprised to find that that's not just what I'm saying, but actually the mental health community also recognizes that there is not a monocausal factor when it comes to depression. 
Charles Barber, who's a professor of psychiatry at Yale University, writes this. He says, if anything has been gleaned from the origins of these maladies in nearly two decades of work, it is that the genetics of psychiatric disorders are terribly complex. No individual gene for a psychiatric disorder has been found and none likely will ever be found. Psychiatric troubles are incredibly complicated and poorly understood and involve an intricate, infinite dialectical dance between experience and biology, right? When we think about what causes depression, right, we should be wary of people who come saying, well, it's, it's because of this. You, you don't have enough faith, or you need to get into a Bible study, or if you had more friends, or if you were on a better diet, or if you were doing this, or getting more exercise, we should be wary of trying to narrow down the scope of why somebody is struggling with depression to simply a single factor. There's a series of diagrams that I want us to work through together in terms of thinking about what might then be some of the factors that do contribute to depression. In the first diagram there, what you see is what has historically been represented as the tension in modern psychiatry, the nature-nurture dynamic that for, I would say, probably the first hundred years of modern mental health, the idea was, listen, the reason why you struggle the way that you do is because of your environment. It's because of your family of origin. And Freud, of course, was the big proponent of this. And so in treating depression, you would go back into the past and uh, you would explore the family of origin. You would explore the context and the environment. I'd probably say in the past 20 or 30 years, that nature, that nurture model has swung over to a nature model of, no, you don't, you don't struggle because of outside factors or outside external influences, but you struggle because of your body, right? There's actually some type of chemical imbalance going wrong, or there's something actually neuropathologically rewiring in the brain that's happening that, that that's actually what causes depression. Your neurons aren't firing the way that they are. But one of the unfortunate things, as you read the literature out there about what causes depression, you read either people who are coming from a nature or a nurture background, is what is missing is the individual. What's missing is the actual person, the person in the midst of this who's actually struggling with the diagnosis of depression. That takes us to the second diagram, because the church then has unfortunately oftentimes been what I would say would be overly reductionistic when it comes to why people struggle with depression. We don't want to give too much credence to either the body or to our environment, and so we can reduce depression to simply being a spiritual issue. We can say, well, listen, the reason why people struggle is because either Satan's attacking them, they're going through some type of spiritual battle, or we can over-spiritualize and say, well, God's just testing people. He's just trying to, to take you through a dark season to, to, to help you realize that He's all that you need in a period of difficulty or suffering. And so what this, what this diagram represents is an oversimplification of the problem and a reduction, right, of the influence of external factors like our family of origin and our body. And what I actually find is helpful is combining both the first set of circles and the second set of circles to, to really help us work through what is, I would say, a biblical anthropology that at the very center of those circles, that what we see there is that Scripture actually gives rise and gives testimony to the fact that, listen, at the very core, you are a worshiping being, right? That everything that affects you, right? That, that everything that influences you ultimately comes out of the heart. But that what we also realize from the pages of Scripture is that there can be external physically embodied circumstances which mitigate, right, which mitigate and sometimes can inhibit, right, the worship of our heart from being expressed in the way that we would want it, right? Maybe you can think of a, a simple illustration like this, right? A, a mom is caring for three young children, and the kids have been up in the middle of the night. They've been sick. They've been throwing up, and she's not able to get a good night's sleep, and she herself is not feeling that well, right? And so the next day as she's trying to do all of her duties and get everything together and get the kids off to school, right, one of the kids doesn't listen to her, is disrespectful or unkind to their sibling. And, and the mom, right, because of the context that she's coming out of, right, because she's a little bit more tired, because she hasn't gotten a lot of sleep, because she's a little bit more physically worn down, her ability to watch over her words, her ability to respond in grace and truth gets limited. It gets mitigated, and so maybe she snaps in an, in an unhelpful way. 
right? Is she responsible for those responses? Absolutely, but we would be, we'd be foolish to also not recognize the way that her physical body, the way that she is as an embodied soul, the way that that has impacted her ability, right, to walk in the Spirit and to be faithful to the desires and to the demands that are upon her. Right? When you look at these circles, you realize that we are physically embodied beings. And not only are we physically embodied, but that next circle out, that we're socially embedded. Right? That there are a multitude of social factors, many of which have already been talked about earlier in our day-to-day social factors that all of us come out of. Every single one of you comes from a family. You come from a socioeconomic background. You come from a certain ethnicity. You come from a certain particular place. Many of times, many times of which those various environmental factors uh, can have a significant impact on the way that you live your life. But also, we're spiritually embattled people, right? These two outer circles are the two outer circles that modern psychiatry and that community mental health aren't able to access, right? They are overly physical, overly reductionistic, but, but what we see in the pages of Scripture is not only are we physically embodied and socially embedded, but we're spiritually embattled people. That we live in a world, right, that is broken and tainted by sin. We live in a world where, where Satan is active, right? He is our adversary. He is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But underneath all of this, or rather over all of this, we, we live in a world that, that God is sovereign over. And not only is he sovereign, but he is wise and he is loving and he is orchestrating the interplay between all of these various factors for his glory. So when we're thinking about why people struggle with depression, what I would want to caution us against would be an overly physically embodied model, which is what the first diagram represents, but also not to over-spiritualize depression as being merely something that, that happens when people don't have weak faith or don't have strong faith, rather, but that rather putting all of those factors together, I think, actually gives us the most comprehensive picture. A little bit of a word on uh, depression and medications. The two most common treatments for depression are CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, and antidepressants. Uh, when it comes to antidepressants, antidepressants, I think for many of us, if you've had any experience with them both personally or known somebody who's on them, antidepressants don't have a universal return rate. That many people use antidepressants, and some are helped by them, but also many others aren't. Uh, 20% of people who actually get a prescription for an antidepressant will never end up filling that prescription. And 60% of people experience such adverse side effects from antidepressants that they discontinue their use. Brian Resnick, a psychiatrist, says this. He says, here's a frustrating fact for anyone who has been prescribed medication or therapy for depression. Quote, your doctor doesn't know what treatment will work for you. That's not overly encouraging for many of us because oftentimes when you look at magazine advertisements or when you watch commercials for antidepressants or for medications, what is sold to you and what is oftentimes communicated is, listen, this, is, this pill or whatever the medication or the treatment is, this is the one thing that's really kind of going to be the silver bullet to help you. And, and in fact, when Prozac came out on the market in 1988, that really was the promise of Prozac was that, listen, Prozac was this new development by way of treatment and depression that was going to, if not completely, significantly eliminate depression here in America. But obviously, uh, decades later, that's not proven to be the case. Leanne Marie Williams writes this. She says, especially as it relates to, to medication, she says it's currently complete, primitive guesswork. It is hard to imagine how you can do worse than the current situation, to be honest, right? That's, that is people in the higher upper echelons of modern mental health, right? This, this isn't just me saying this. This is people within community mental health observing and realizing, listen, there is an aspect, there is a despair, a hopelessness, right, which John talked about this morning. There is a hopelessness that our medications alone are not able to treat right? With all of the research and development, with all of the medications that are out there on the market, there is a significant aspect, right, that, that we realize that we are not able to move the needle in any way as it relates to this issue. Uh, Stephen Hyman Stephen Hyman was the former uh, national director of the National Institute for Mental Health, and in an interview on NPR, uh, he had this, this wonderful aside where he is talking about uh, modern psychiatry's problems in really being able to help people with the issues that they come to treatment for. And he said, we psychiatrists have been given an impossible task. He said, we cannot give people what they truly need, which is meaning and relationship. 
meaning and relationship. And it's, a, it's one, of the, one of the few times where you hear somebody, again, who is up at the higher upper echelons of mental health being, I think, in many ways, fundamentally honest, saying, listen, we have all of the research, all of the medical, all of the medical tools that are available to us, the brain scans, the MRIs, the neuropathology. But at the very core, as we think about this issue, what we can't really give people is meaning and relationship. And of course, that's where I think our faith in Scripture and the person and work of Christ offers Christians a most helpful answer to this dilemma. When we think about medications, Michael Emlett, who's at CCEF and a medical doctor, talks about oftentimes the approach to medication he describes as a Goldilocks syndrome. He says some of us are too hot on medications, meaning that we think medications can solve everything. Some of us, he said, are too cold on medications and would say, listen, it's wrong, it's sinful, it's, it's unbiblical to use medications. And what Dr. Emlett recommends is can we, can we navigate a via media? Is there a path that is neither too hot nor too cold as it relates to medications? Another illustration that he oftentimes uses that we'll use at our counseling center when clients come to us to talk about medication is we describe it to a deep sea diver. And we say, listen, a deep sea diver who is in a boat and who is maybe in the middle of a storm, right? He needs something that can calm the waters on top so that the deep sea diver can go underneath the surface to discover what's going on. And a lot of times we will talk about that and we will use that illustration to help our clients who are on medication to say, listen, all we're doing and all we're saying is that medication sometimes can at least to some degree operate and influence that top layer so that through counseling and through therapy and through scriptures, we can actually go below the surface. We can actually take scripture and, and actually speak to the heart of what's going on. Dr. Imlick gives these, these sets of couplets to help us then put up some of these guardrails so that we're neither too hot or neither too cold on medication. He says, number one, it's a kingdom agenda to relieve suffering, but it's also a kingdom agenda to have us be redeemed in the midst of our suffering, right? That there are times in Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, where we see Christ as very much interested in doing what? Alleviating suffering, right? He is healing people. He is healing lame people. He is giving sight to blind people. And there's often other times, as we know through Scripture, where that suffering is not alleviated. And actually, God's plan in the midst of that suffering is for us to draw closer to Him. Secondly, medications are a gift of God's common grace, but medications can oftentimes be used idolatrously, right? Some people think that medication is their only answer, but some people oftentimes say, well, no, if you use that medication, then, then you don't have enough faith, and you are, you're actually sinning by taking that medication. This third couplet, a person may have wrong motives for wanting to take medication, Dr. Emlett writes, but a person may also have wrong motives for not wanting to take medication. I talked to a recent client of mine, and he's been, I would say, in a very extended season of depression for about three years. He's coming off of the heels of uh, an incredibly nasty divorce and custody battle. He's caring for two aging parents and is desperately, desperately struggling in an incredibly dark season of depression. And a friend of him, a friend of his, as they were talking about his situation, the friend said, well, listen, you don't need medication. You can get out of this on your own. You, you just have to prove yourself to your kids and prove yourself to your ex-wife. And as he was coming to counseling, one of the reasons why he was not willing to avail himself of what potentially could be something that could be helpful to him was he wanted to be able to do it on his own. He wanted to be able to kind of pull himself up by his own bootstraps. And so we talked about how there could be some other opportunities in his life that could to some degree alleviate some of his suffering to better enable him to follow Christ. Dr. Catherine Butler summarizes helpfully. She says, when used wisely in severe depression, antidepressants don't offer an escape from suffering, but they rather equip us to contend with it. And when used with discernment, these medications can root us in reality and help us to focus with clarity on our risen Lord. Well, all that being said, let's make a little bit of a transition to talking about a biblical understanding of depression. So what I've tried to do over the balance of uh, that first third of our time together is to share a little bit about just where the current state of conversation is as it relates to depression. But as we move to Scripture, we realize that Scripture is full of people who have struggled with depression or depression-like symptoms, right? The DSM uh, manual wasn't, wasn't around in Bible times, but as we read Scripture, we realize that there is a whole litany of people who have struggled with depression. 
People like Hannah, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Hannah, uh, Samuel writes, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, right? That's an environmental factor, right? That's a, a family of origin factor. It says, as her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, right? A spiritual factor. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart what? In 1 Samuel 6, 8, why is your heart so sad? Right? What you see there in Hannah's story, right, is a story that's probably familiar to many of us, that it's not just one factor that's leading to her sadness-like symptoms or her depression-like symptoms, but there's familial factors going on. There's physiological factors going on. There are spiritual factors going on. You can see this throughout Scripture from Saul to David to, to Job. In Job 9.11, Job cries out to God, and he says, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, and I do not perceive him. Right? That, that for even someone like Job, he says, Listen, I don't even matter to God. I'm not even going to bother crying out to God because God is way too busy to ever be concerned about me or to even see me. We can think about people like Elijah, people like Nehemiah, Jonah, the psalmist, and even Paul, right? Scripture is full of broken people, right? Scripture is full of people who, at the end of the day, look much more like us than different people who have struggled through this dark night of the soul. As we develop a biblical perspective on depression, I want to give you a series of just 10 helpful guidelines to help us frame out what we believe and what Scripture has to say about depression. The first of which is this, number one, that you can be a Christian and struggle with depression. And that might seem to be a bit obvious, but I oftentimes find in settings like this that it is incredibly helpful, especially for those of you this afternoon who are struggling with depression to hear that that you can be a Christian and still struggle with these issues. Susanna Wesley, in commenting on her husband, Charles Wesley, who notoriously struggled with depression, wrote this. She said, my beloved's anguish was so deep and was so violent that reason itself seemed to totter in its throne, and I sometimes feared that Charles would never preach again, right? Charles Wesley, this, this giant of the faith, was internally racked with difficulty and with depression, and yet still was faithful to Christ. Number two, depression is possible because we live in a fallen world, right? Depression, I think, in many ways shouldn't surprise us, but we actually realize is incredibly possible and plausible because we live in a fallen world. And again, friends, this is where our Christian faith and, and Scripture is so helpful in understanding the world that we live in, right? Uh, the world that we live in is not moving in a direction that is positive per se, right? That everything works the way that it should, but Scripture actually gives us a vision of a world that's broken by the effects of sin, a world that is in bondage and that is enslaved and that is crying out for redemption. Number three, depression is a possible outcome if you try to live life apart from God. Right, you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think Ecclesiastes lays that out quite wonderfully where the author of Ecclesiastes eventually comes to this conclusion. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That when we try to live life apart from a biblical and a Christ-oriented perspective, that, that depression and despair and hopelessness is a possible and a plausible outcome. Number four, depression makes sense because our bodies are yearning for redemption, right? Your body, as the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is, is wasting away, right? We are in a culture that is doing everything that it can to stem the tide of the frailty and the fragility of the human body, right? In terms of aging and cosmetic procedures and moisturizing creams and essential oils and everything in between, we are a culture who is deeply uncomfortable with our bodies and who are deeply uncomfortable with aging and frailty and fragility. When we think about the body and the body's impact on the worship of our heart, again, we, we think about other people in church history who have struggled physically, and that physicality has led to depression, notoriously Martin Luther. Right? Many of you who are familiar with Martin Luther's story will, will remember that Martin Luther had 
excruciating physical problems. He suffered from chronic kidney stones and chronic headaches. He struggled with a buzzing in his ears. There was something about his ears where he would constantly hear a ringing. Uh, he had ear infections. He had incapacitating constipation that he, that he wrote about. I wouldn't encourage you to read about it, but you can. All that to say, he had a whole host of physical issues. Martin Luther wrote in one of his journals, he says, I nearly gave up the ghost and now bathed in blood, I can find no peace. What took four days to heal immediately tears open again. And he's talking about these lesions that had opened up on his skin. Continuing on in a letter to his friend Melanchthon on August 2nd, Luther wrote to Melanchthon this. He says, for more than a week, I have been thrown back and forth in death and in hell. My whole body feels beaten. My limbs are still trembling. I almost lost Christ completely, driven about on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. But because of the intercession of the faithful, God began to take mercy on me and tore my soul from the depths of hell. Right? Sometimes I think we think of depression as only affecting kind of weak Christians or baby Christians. Friends, when we think about Christians, right, we think about people like Martin Luther, people who had strong faith but physically were deeply affected by depression. Charles Spurgeon also was a well-known pastor who struggled with depression. And if you're familiar with Spurgeon's story, you realize that in Spurgeon's story, there were so many different factors that contributed to his depression. He suffered an incredible setback and loss early on in his ministry where at Metropolitan Tabernacle, somebody in the audience cried out fire and it ensued a great stampede and that when that stampede left Metropolitan Tabernacle as the exit, as the congregation exited, that, that over a dozen people were trampled to death and were killed. The newspapers there in London ripped Charles Spurgeon to shreds and talked about how horrible of a minister he was to allow something like that to happen. And, and Spurgeon actually left the pulpit for over a year and a half. He was so debilitated by what the London press had said about him that he was incredibly, incredibly discouraged. Spurgeon wrote later this. He says, the flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour, right? When we think about depression, right, there are physical components which we have to acknowledge to understand this difficulty that many people go through. Number five, depression is possible and it's probable because we have an enemy that deals in lies and wants our destruction. Friends, when you read Scripture and you begin to take note of the work of Satan, especially as it relates to Christians, the number one way that Satan in his activity is described is that he is a what? That he is a deceiver. He is an accuser of the brethren, right? That there is this way that he can come and I think elicit and, and encourage doubts among God's faithful. Martin Luther, again, is so helpful in this in writing about his own experience. Luther writes, he says, For as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you, will make a real doctor of you, and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. If the devil can do nothing against the teachings, he attacks the person, lying, slandering, cursing, and ranting at him. Number six, depression can take place when we have misplaced hopes and desires, right? The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13 describes this dynamic quite vividly. He talks about the Israelite children who have basically built a lot of wells, these empty cisterns, hoping that they would get water, but as they get to the bottom of the well, they, they get what? They get nothing, right? He says, listen, you have spent your entire life building these empty cisterns. You've, you've gone from well to well digging, hoping that maybe this well or maybe this location will really give me what I want, and all you're left with is a bunch of empty cisterns. Depression and despair can take place when you and I have misplaced hopes and misplaced desires. Number seven, depression has not taken God by surprise. Depression is not taking God by surprise. You look at the Exodus, in Exodus 3, 7, right? The children of Israel have been enslaved for over 400 years, and, and in Exodus 3, 7, God hears the cries of his afflicted, and it says that he hears them, he sees them, and he acts on their behalf, right? That we don't serve a God who is distant from us during depression, but who does hear us and hears our cries for help. 
Number eight, sadness is not mutually exclusive from Christian joy. I think a lot of times, and again, if you're similar to me by way of constitution and personality, there will be times where you're perhaps a bit more melancholic or more sad or more depressed, but then there will be these pockets of joy and happiness. And sometimes we, we try to put those in juxtaposition of either I'm happy or I'm sad. But we all know that with the complexity of human emotion that it's possible to both be sad and happy at the same time, that there might be things in your life that are incredibly difficult and discouraging for you right now, but that there might also be these pockets of true joy and happiness. You think about the Apostle Paul, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, I am sorrowful yet always what? I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing, right? That, that Paul, more so than anybody in the New Testament besides Christ, was somebody who went through immense suffering, immense difficulty, immense hardship, but who doesn't minimize that in any way by saying at the same time that I have found the secret to contentment, that, that, that Christ can strengthen me in the midst of my circumstances. Number nine, Scripture offers a compelling look at a future with no depression, right? And again, this is one of the ways that I think our Christian faith, friends, has the opportunity and the ability to testify to a culture that has lost its moorings as it relates to depression. I told you earlier that Prozac came out on the market in 1988, and as of today, there are over 550 different antidepressant medications out there on the market, right? What, what culture had said, listen, this one thing, it is going to revolutionize the way that we treat depression, and now here we are decades later, and we still don't have an answer to it, right? The Christian faith, right, Scripture opens up and says, listen, we actually do have something to look forward to. Scripture offers an eschatological and a compelling look at a future where the former things will not be remembered, where there is no sadness, where there is no death, where God will make all things new. Number 10, affliction and suffering can be used by God. And oftentimes, this might be the first place you would go. I put it purposefully at number 10 because many of us, I think, conversationally can get to number 10 much too quickly in our conversations. But it is true that suffering and affliction can be used by God. Again, Luther is so helpful. Luther writes, he says, trials teach you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's Word is. It is wisdom supreme. Charles Spurgeon writes this, he says, knowing by the most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means and being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be consolatory to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts thereon that younger men might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they became for a season possessed by melancholy and that sadder men might know that one upon whom the sun has shone right joylessly, did not always walk in the light. Right? What Spurgeon there and what Luther are attesting to is that on the other side of suffering and depression, that oftentimes we realize that on the other side of the valley, we are with better eyes and better hindsight able to see who God is and what He was doing. Right? Spurgeon is saying, listen, because I've been through this dark night of the soul, because I've been through depression, I can tell some of you younger kids, I can tell some of you younger pastors, when you go through those seasons, don't be discouraged. Listen, I've been there, and in those seasons, God has been faithful and merciful to me. So all that being said, as we kind of land the plane, how do, we, how do we offer help and hope to the depressed? What might you do, right? Based off of that framework that we tried to just lay, and again, I, I tried to structure this half in terms of both for the struggler, so some of you today, this afternoon, might find yourself in that category, and then we'll also spend time talking about those of you who are in helping relationships. How do you help somebody with depression? Uh, number one, for the struggler, Find a metaphor in Scripture that speaks to you, right? Scripture, oftentimes we think about Scripture coming to us in propositional form, which oftentimes it does, right? When you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, as he describes the gospel, he says, listen, this is what I'm going to deliver to you, that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He was raised again on the third day. That's good. We need to know that. But Scripture also speaks to us in story and in metaphor. I want you to turn over with me to my, one of my favorite passages in Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
a passage that I found helpful in the midst of my own difficulty and hardship, a metaphor that has helped me and helped me understand who God is. Talking to the children of Israel, Moses is relating God's care. And listen to what, listen to what is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10. God found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and he cared for him and he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them and bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with the honey out of the rock. This is a beautiful and a gorgeous metaphor of God's care for the children of Israel in the midst of a howling wilderness. Right? For, for those of you who are struggling, right, this, this picture becomes so clear to you, right, because you know what it's like to be in the howling waste of a wilderness. You know what it's like to be completely isolated and alone. And what, what Moses records for us here is God's loving and tender care. He says, imagine God coming to you and saying to you, I will keep you as the apple of my eye. So it's a phrase that we all know and that we're familiar with. And it's also picked up in Psalm 17, 8, where God says that he keeps us as the apple of his eye. Have you ever thought of yourself in that way? That you are at the center of God's universe, that he cares for you, that his gaze is oriented towards you, and that as believers, we can call out to God and say, God, keep us as the apple of your eye. In verse 11, God is described like an eagle that stirs up its nest. The local zoo in our town, there's this, there's this exhibit where all these different birds are, and they have an eagle's nest, a life-size replica of an eagle's nest, and they have the actual wingspan of an eagle where you can go up and kind of reach out your arms and compare yourself to an eagle's wingspan, and you'll know that an eagle's wingspan can be 12 to 14 feet in length. And you can imagine an eagle coming alongside you, right? You are, you are, you are incredibly despaired. You were, you were by yourself in a wilderness, and God comes over you like a giant eagle. He hovers over you. He flutters his wings over you. He encircles you. He cares for you, and he protects you. Right? That, friends, that's a metaphor that can reach deep inside your heart. I could tell you that God's powerful, right? I could tell you that God's omnipotent, right? And that's good. That is true. But there is something about a metaphor that helps break through that odd filter of depression. So find a metaphor. Maybe it's Psalm 23, that the Lord is your shepherd. Maybe it's Psalm 34, 18, where we're told that God takes all of our tears and he puts them in a bottle. Maybe it's Psalm 91, we are told that, that we can be sheltered under the Almighty, under his wings, and that he won't let our foot slip. Maybe it's Isaiah 63, where God is depicted as this warrior king who goes out on our behalf and executes justice. For any of you whose depression stems from abuse or assault or sexual brokenness, where sin has been done to you, right? The picture of God as a conquering king and a conquering warrior on your behalf, Isaiah 63 gives testimony to that. So find a metaphor in Scripture that speaks to you. Number two, talk to yourself. Don't just listen to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a medical doctor, London preacher, uh, famously struggled with depression himself as well, and he talks oftentimes that one of the difficulties in depression is that we do far too much listening to ourselves listening to our emotions, and we don't do enough talking to ourselves. He says, in other words, we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. We must take ourselves in hand. We must address ourselves as the psalmist addressed himself in his soul and asked the question, why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted within me? Right? For many of us, part of the exercise of working through the difficulty of depression is not just listening to ourselves, but talking back to ourselves, talking back to the lies and the untruths that oftentimes we will tell ourselves. That takes us to the third point of identify depression's lies. Identify depression's lies, and I've tried to list some there for you. You know, these are sometimes the lies that depression will tell you. It's always going to be like this. 
This is just the way things are. No one cares about you. You're a burden to others. Don't tell anyone. You're the only one who struggles like this. Something's wrong with you. Strong, successful people don't battle depression. My family is better off without me. I had a client, a pastor, who I was meeting a few weeks ago with who was in a season of depression. And as we were talking about his depression, he said very early on in pastoral ministry, he said, one of my elders told me, he said, don't ever cry. He said, real pastors don't cry. They're strong for their church. They're strong for the congregation. And as he was in this, in this season of deep sadness and depression, right, he, he, had allowed that, he had allowed that voice to infiltrate his own thinking, and it had cut him off from community and from loved ones who wanted to help him. Counselor Jason Kovacs writes this. He says, a large component of depression is the deep entrenchment of lies that Satan tempts humans to believe. A person can hear terrible things about his worth, his identity, and his future. And in those moments, he needs to fight to believe the things that are real and truth from the mouth of God. Encourage the depressed person to make an action plan for when he is speaking lies to his soul. And number four, consider non-medical interventions. Again, medication and therapy are the number, are the number one and number two most uh, frequent treatments for depression. But one of the things as you read medical research is that non-medically invasive procedures and, and interventions are actually, if not equally, more successful oftentimes than medication. Things like addressing your sleep, your diet, and your exercise, that, that top triad right there alone. If you can alter and, and get into better rhythms of sleep, diet, and exercise, I think you will be surprised how some of the factors and some of the feelings of depression can oftentimes be mitigated. Uh, things like music, right? Music plays an important role in the treatment of depression. Uh, counseling. Right? Counseling obviously is a very helpful aspect that's obviously non-medical, but it can be a helpful tool in fighting depression. Addressing the time that you spend on social media and technology, you will be, it will be incredibly difficult for you to find any study that says that more time on social media or technology increases your sense of well-being. And in fact, it's quite the opposite that the more time as a culture that we spend interfacing with these mediated, curated realities, the more it increases depression. And number five, understand the role of feelings and emotions. I tell our clients oftentimes this, that emotions and feelings are good passengers in the car, but horrible drivers, right? Oftentimes we put emotions and feelings in the driver's seat. I don't want to get rid of emotions and feelings because God created you with them, but they make bad drivers better passengers. Bob Coughlin writes this. He says, feelings tell me something is happening in my soul, but they don't necessarily tell me why I feel or don't feel in a certain way. We discover that through patiently and consistently trusting and pursuing God, that when I insist on finding relief from my emotional distress before I believe God, that I'm actually living by sight and not by faith. And so in counseling, I'm trying to help individuals and couples recognize the role of feelings and emotions, that they are good, and that they oftentimes do tell me something about the experience that I'm going through, but that I don't want to base my entire reality upon them. Let's make a little bit of a transition now to the helper. For those of you who are in counseling relationships or who have opportunity to care, how can you help someone who's struggling with depression? Uh, number one, acknowledge that there's no easy answer. There is no easy answer to depression. I included five there for you. Again, this is from Lloyd-Jones's book on spiritual depression. Lloyd-Jones, again, as a medical doctor, lists over five different factors uh, that could affect and, and, and motivate a person uh, who's struggling with depression. But we're asking a wrong question if what we lead with in a helping relationship is some type of offering of an answer of, well, you're probably just struggling because, and then fill in the blank. That takes us to the second point. Uh, learn what not to say. Learn what not to say to those who are depressed. Ed Welch has put together a little bit of a, a laundry list, and, and, and many of these are things that I've oftentimes heard well-meaning people say as well to other people who are depressed. Uh, quote, you have to try St. John's wort, or another one I'll hear is, have you ever tried melatonin, right? Are you exercising enough? I have a devotional book for you that you're going to love. 
by faith remember that God loves you, or just do the next thing, take the next step. You need to trust in the Lord. Just put one foot in front of the other and do the next thing. You're really under a lot of stress. You should take a vacation, or you just really need to force yourself out of bed and think more positive thoughts, right? Now, again, none of those things in and of themselves might, might be bad, but when they are said, apart from the context of a relationship, right, they, they become words that are unhelpful. Proverbs 27, 14 says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing, right? You might have good content, but your delivery can be horrible, right? You can have good content, but if you don't know that the other person is not a morning person and you want to call out all your blessings to that person in the morning, right, don't be surprised that they shut you out, that they, that they take your counsel and that they reject it. Number three, ask good questions, but don't overwhelm the person. Oftentimes in biblical counseling, a hallmark of our counseling methodology is that we ask a lot of questions, but with depression, I find that's always not the best way to go. Questions are not always the best path to go down with someone who is depressed. Ed Welt writes this, he says, with more questions comes less empathy. It feels more like an interrogation than a conversation, right? You don't you don't want to play the role of a private investigator, right? You don't want to come in and assault the person who is struggling with depression with a whole litany of questions. No, what you want to do is you want to listen well. You want to come and you want to offer presence. Offer to do practical things with them or for them. Invite them to come and do things with you. Extend yourself. Make invitations. And don't get offended if they don't take you up on them, right? Oftentimes, I think we, we, we have this mentality of, uh, you know, you get one chance, and then after that, I'm not going to offer again, right? Well, I invited them to our small group a couple of times, and she just can't, can't make it, so, you know, it's on her. Or I've invited them to church a couple of times, but they're just too busy, so I'm just not going to reach out again. With the depressed person, I think oftentimes you have to be consistently pursuing them. You have to make and extend yourself and extend the invitation, but be cautious of asking too many questions. Don't overwhelm the individual. And number four, don't assume sin. And again, I would hope that nobody in here in this room, that this would be your first instinct, but sometimes we can do it a bit more subtly. In John chapter 9, right, we have the famous story of the man born blind, and in John chapter 9, it gets recorded that as he passed by, Christ saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I think all of us as Christians sometimes have this knee-jerk default reaction to want to be able to explain things quite easily and, and quite tidily, right? So sometimes we can think, well, it's, you know, if you just believe God loved you more, well, then you wouldn't be struggling. Or if you, if you knew there were so many people around you who loved you, then you wouldn't feel so isolated or feel so alone. And sometimes we can assume responsibility and we can assume uh, culpability. We can assume that maybe there's sin in a person's life and oftentimes, that's, that's not the case. Zach Eswine writes this. He says, in the eyes of many people, including Christian people, depression signifies cowardice, faithlessness, or a bad attitude. Such people tell God in prayer and their friends in person that the sufferer of depression is soft or unspiritual. And that was my, my pastor friend had been told that from a very early time. He said, listen, don't cry. Don't be soft. Don't be weak. Next, don't, don't take Scripture out of context. Don't take Scripture out of context. I've heard way too many Christians use Romans 8.28 in the most unhelpful of ways, trying to communicate and trying to kind of put a happy face on depression. Don't worry, God's going to use this in your life, right? Well, that, that, that context of that verse is that the circumstances that God is going to use doesn't mean that everything turns out good in our life, but that everything is meant to what? To conform us into the image of Christ. And sometimes that, that transformation is painful. It's not easy. You can think about verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which I've heard uh, used unhelpfully many times of, well, listen, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, Right? No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. So you should be able to get through this because what you're going through, everybody goes through. And again, for the struggler, all they hear is, well, I don't have enough faith. 
I'm not like anybody else. I can't do this. And, and so, so maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't hear me. Finally, point to Jesus Christ. Walking with depressed people takes time and energy and care. Uh, we recommend both in our lay counseling and at Fieldstone that nobody should be bearing the burden of coming alongside a depressed person by themselves. We advocate for what we call a team-based approach. We want doctors to be involved. We want therapists to be involved. We want the local church to be involved, friends and neighbors, right? If you try to come alongside a person who is depressed and bear that burden all on your own, I think we actually miss a critical opportunity to widen the net of care and to ultimately point to Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor are heavy laden and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Christ doesn't tell people, listen, you point people to yourself. Point people to how good you are or what a good counselor or caregiver you are. He says, no, you are inviting people to come to me, the fountain of true living waters, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Finally, and our last point is that we want to see them and not just the depression. So often, I've even today been, been trying to be thoughtful of how I talk about depression. It's not depressed people, but it's people who struggle with depression, right? We, we don't want to take a diagnosis and make it an identity, right? It's not divorced people or, 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 or taking our pathology or what is wrong and, and creating an entire system of identity. Look at the person. See them. Call them by their name. Ed Welch writes this. He says, one of the problems with the word depression is that it can define people. Instead of being a simple summary of a difficult and a complex experience, depression transforms into a diagnosis. Even more, it can become an identity both to the depressed people themselves and their friends. The diagnosed person is then treated like a patient, and we act like the doctor. And visits are akin to hospital rounds during which doctor friends discuss the case in the hallway before they sugarcoat everything once they enter the patient's room. The result is that there really is no relationship. Truly Christian relationships are mutual and they are open. A good friend who loves you has the freedom to say almost anything and you will listen. A good friend can speak about your strengths and weaknesses, your faith and your sin, and they will speak openly about these things as evidence of the friendship, not in spite of it. So, friends, when we are coming alongside people who struggle with depression, make sure that you don't confine and narrow the point of interaction with them only to the fact that they struggle with depression. Every conversation doesn't need to be about how hard their life is. Every conversation doesn't have to circle back around to their depression or their experience of it. And so we want to be thoughtful and careful that we don't allow ourselves to go towards that path. I've tried to include there for you in your handout a variety of different resources that I found helpful, both audio and video resources as well as books. Uh, I will say this at the outset, I don't encourage depressed people to be reading more books, right? That's not something that more often than not a person who's struggling with depression wants to do. These are resources meant for you as a caregiver and as a friend. And I've also included there a letter for you that David Pallison wrote uh, to someone who's struggling with depression. And I think he just gives us a wonderful, inimitable way to just come alongside someone and just help them in the midst of their struggle. And you can use that as a little bit of a template for yourself. The time, unfortunately, has gotten a little bit away from us, and so I don't think that we're going to have time to do a question and answer. But what I'll do is I'll close us in prayer, and then I'll, I'd love to be available to, to those of you if you have a few questions or comments afterwards, and I'll try to be as helpful as I can. Now, let's pray. Now, Father God, we come to you uh, this afternoon. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who comes to us as a shepherd, who is with us in both green pastures, but who is also with us in the dark valleys and dark nights of our soul. Uh, Father, we're thankful that you are a God who bottles up all of our tears. Father, we're thankful that you tell us that when our anxieties multiply, that your consolations are there for us. We're thankful that you're a God who hovers over us and who encircles us and who protects us. God, we're thankful that you, that you hide us up underneath your wings, that you are a God who is a, a fortress, a rock, and a refuge, and ever-present help in time of trouble. 
Lord, we are so thankful for the many ways that you draw near to us in suffering, not draw away from us. And Father, we oftentimes realize that, that depression can actually reverse that reality and actually cause us to believe that you were incredibly distant from us and that in the midst of those seasons, we need wise friends, wise friends like that are represented here in this auditorium this afternoon. We need wise friends who will come and who will not only speak your words, but who will mediate your presence to us. We need friends who are willing to come alongside and cry with us. We need friends who are willing to put their arm around us, to come up alongside us, to invite us into their lives and enfold us into their family. Father, you are the God of all comfort, and you comfort us oftentimes through your word and through others. And so, Father, today I pray that all of us would leave here today better equipped to help, to help those around us who are suffering and who are struggling with depression. And Father, I pray that for, for anyone here today who is struggling with depression, who knows exactly and intimately what we are talking about, who, who is actually living this darkness and this reality, Lord, give them Give them a small amount of courage to, to reach out to someone, to be honest about their feelings, to talk about what's going on below the surface. And Father, I pray that they would find your son Christ to be a great and a merciful high priest to offer them grace and mercy in their time of need. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.